I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Uh, well, this is lovely. <laughs> I'm, I'm really very happy to be reading uh, today. Uh, it's my first time at the LRB, uh, and I'm like delighted to be reading with you, Tracy. Um, oh, you, you probably don't know this, but uh, my very first pamphlet... Uh, it was called uh, Your Sign is Cuckoo Girl. And I had uh, a, a line from Duende in it. Oh, really? um, so it's kind of like a lovely full circle to be able to uh, share the stage with you, oh. actually. Um, so I'm going to read a few poems um, to begin with uh, from Serge. Um, and I'm going to give a little bit of background just before I start, just to sort of contextualise it a little. Um, so I, I did a residency in t- uh, 2016, um, at the George Padmore Institute, and I was very drawn to the archives of the New Cross fire that had happened in 1981. Thirteen black kids died; they were perished. Uh, and 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 what what the racism that came after that was not the um, the fire itself, but it was it was the state indifference that came afterwards. Uh, and uh, then midway through the pro- project, after about a year, uh, Grenfell happened, and I realised that these two things had a lot of things in common that. Actually, these accidental um, disasters were, were indicative of kind of like the broader society at large. So that's where this comes from. Um, and the, the poems move from the New Cross fire into the present day. Um, and I think I try to think about the, the city not solely as a, a kind of um, sort of geopolitical thing, but as a kind of embodied thing as well. Um, looking at the archive really changed the way that I thought about gender, race, as embodied experiences. Um, and these poems, um, certainly the first few, are the voices of ghosts. And then we kind of move into the, into the, into the real body. Arc. Now shall we consult the life of a stranger... Now shall we see what can and cannot be kept. I take this morning from its box, see how the years have warped its edges, its middle pages conjoined at the text. I remove the rusted red paper clip, 
Dry sponges, brittle red remains, unfold a liver spotted note in copper ink, date it by the flaking electroset and amber glue. Press each part to the flatbed scanner, wonder which words to file the damp smoke and young bones under. I sometimes recognise a face from a high eight film. I'm introduced to she who squatted in the 70s, who made that speech, who remembers 81 when a crowd black as my hand gathered one morning and crossed Blackfriars Bridge and were heckled by the press. The year was still fresh, still screaming with its eyes closed. Me brother dead, me brother dead, me brother dead, oh. Me sister dead, me sister dead, me sister dead, oh. A white-sleeved hack hung from that ledge to better spit at some kid who recalls it now by their cup of archive wine. I take this January morning in my hands and wonder if it should go under London, England, Britain, British, Black British, where to put the burning house and the child-made ash, the brick in the back of the neck, the shit in the letterbox and the piss up the side of it. I file it under fire, corpus, body, house. Harbour. My voice, it was so weak, so sickened and so grieved. My voice, it was so weak and it broke in the heat. So sickened, so sad, my voice, it was weak. It sickened, I choked, it closed in my throat. My voice, it was weak, so sickened, so grieved. My voice became glass, breaking in heat. I called and no one seemed to call with me and no one seemed to know or see what I had seen. I was so sickened and so grieved. And I said to the child, I knew harboured in the fire, jump, Yvonne, jump, pull, jump. I said, I called, jump, Yvonne, jump, pull, jump. And I said to my God, I knew harboured in the fire, jump, Yvonne, jump, pull, jump. I said, I called, jump, Yvonne, jump, pull, jump. My voice, it was so weak, pull, jump. So sickened and so grieved. Clearing. He takes my head and places it in a plastic bag. Downstairs, two officers stamp their feet and blow into their hands. The windows are cups of water filled with winter. He holds the bag open, searching for a gaze to meet. Cold dusts at the bones. And he doesn't see me standing there and he doesn't hear me speak. An officer circles the front yard, leaning back to see the smoke or is it steam? Is it fire or water that can bring a child back? It lied that which is heavy in his hand and that which watches from the corner of the room. This house is a gas lamp and soot frosts its glass white gut. The officer closes his eyes, two pennies in a fount. From the bag, I see his face turning away and from the corner, his body bending towards mine. Plus. The officer said, oh, it's very common for culprits to go missing. And I said, my son isn't a culprit and how dare he imply it. And one of the officers stood up by the window and he looked out. And he didn't want to look us full in the eye. He made it clear. He made it clear from the moment he set foot in the house, the moment he set foot, what he thought of us. 
And when they came back a few days later, I think the Tuesday, I think the Tuesday, he said, he said, what were you wearing on the night of the fire? And I said, probably your new trousers. And he said, brown shoes. I said, yes. And he says, yellow shirt. I said, yes. And he took some items out of a plastic bag. He took your things out of a plastic bag. And he says, does this look like it? Does this look like it belongs to you? I said, yes. And he says, this key, does it look like it belonged to him? And I said, why don't we try it? And we struggled. And it fit. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so, I'm so, I'm so sorry. And I said, what are you sorry for? I want to see my son. And he says, oh, we don't. We don't recommend it. And I said, I said, I said, I am your father, your father, and I want to see you. And they took me down into a room. And there you were. No face. Nothing to speak of. And I said, is this the body where you found the clothes? Nod. Nod. So I said, this must be you. This must be my son. Minus. You came, Dad. And I had been lying there all night and I couldn't move. And I opened my eyes and I was in the house and everything was black, Dad. I'd been at the party a few hours and I didn't know anything about what had happened, Dad. And I felt someone touch me. And I was so stiff, Dad. And the police officer was looking at me. He was looking at me so strangely, like he couldn't stand the sight of me, couldn't stand to look at me. Police always looked at me like that, Dad. And he turned me over and he took the shirt from under me and they wrapped me in a blanket and they drove me here. And I was lying there waiting for you, Dad. Across the table there were bodies, Dad, twisted, Dad, no heads, like screaming branches of a tree, Dad. Loads of them, I swear, I swear, loads of them. And, and I heard them say, and they were saying, and then you came, and I was calling out to you, Dad, and I know you heard me, because here we are. Come back, and don't bury me. I can't stand it. I can barely stand it when the lights go out, and I'm here listening for you, Dad. I want to crawl between Mum and you, in your bed in your sheets. That's the only kind of burying I want. <clears throat> Songbook 2 How many times has Misty died? How many times has she given us life? How many children does Misty have? As many as there are people hearing this song. Hearing the song, I said they're hearing the song. I said they're listening in from beyond. Hearing the song, I said they're hearing the song. I said they're listening in from beyond. How many lovers has Misty had? As many as there are leaves on the trees. How many places has Misty lived? As many as there are names on the map. Names on the map, is there a names on the map? Is there are places that you can belong? Names on the map. Is there are names on the map? Is there are places that you can belong? How many times has Misty died? As often as there have been babies born. How many times will she die once more? As long as things are worth dying for. And she came up in the morning and she went down in the evening and she came up with the rising of the sun. And she came up in the morning and she went down in the evening and when I turned around she was gone. 
How many times have you seen her since? Never again, not in the same way. She used to be down in Deptford Market, laughing with the sellers all day. Haggling fish, I said she's haggling rice, I said she's good at driving down price. Haggling fish, I said she's haggling rice, I said she's good at driving down price. I haven't seen her, nor have you, not since the fire at 439. I heard her daughter was gone for days. They wouldn't let her see the remains. She came up in the morning and she went down in the evening. She came up with the rising of the sun. And she came up in the morning and she went down in the evening. And when I turned around, she was gone. 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 Pace. I have seen the light you've seen, and my body has been where yours has been. Some part of me resides where you reside. We've swapped presences and parting. I have seen what you have seen, become the part of you I stood beside, passing friend with green eyes. I now reside where you reside. Hello, you standing there to the left of me, you in the heart of those hearing me read. Further ahead on the road we are walking, there in the shadow performing in front of me. You in the rhythm that's always unfolding. You are a question that's always been asked. Who are we now? And what are we wanting from the voices you heard? The presence is there. How do we ask the quiet you've left? What voice you were called? And whose hand you were holding? Pride. I am 17 and summer is still gold clap of hot body and hot body. I kiss myself for courage and duck into the parade and two dykes smiling like young mothers ask me my name. And our gazes lock on love, our slow wend among the cut-offs and the wrecked docks and the glinting nose rings and the head shaved to skin. That hand on my shoulder became a loving mouth pressing its heat into mine. That urgent tongue searching for a place to take root in that way, to go knuckle deep in another, in a third way, sucking white sap directly and watering the teat. Am I the steaming black street? Am I the banner and the band, the crush, the lilting ale, the tipsy hug, the charged flesh and open eye? That was then. Heading to first out when it was us on the menu, salad of fierce look and full power lasagna, speaking with full mouth, queer, lesbian, dyke, offender of no gender, failed woman, swamp, black flag, bleach blonde, Sunday happy Sunday. What it was to me then, those bare arms, to have found them at last, under a slow float, that mood, that heat. And that pride. My body taps me on the heart when someone in soft leather swims into my ken. That smell of squat and underground and every other lover, scent that throws off shame. These days I pass you in the street, though I want to turn around and say thank you for your tongue in my throat, for this thick and practised arse and cunt, for my plaited scars and flat nipples. They call this a city. I call it the dark between two bodies.
wonderful. Thank you. I just want to dwell in those poems a little bit longer. Oh, okay. We're going to have a conversation after yeah, this. So let me get my reading out of the way so we can get to that. Um, I'm so grateful to be here, and I'm so honored to share the stage with you tonight. And um, oh, I feel something so necessary and alive in me that those poems just gave me. So thank you. Um, I think I want to read some poems that are thinking about America and thinking about um, compassion. Um, And usually when I think about America and compassion, it's because I'm trying to figure out what the difference, the distance between those two things is and how to, how to, diminish it. Um, Maybe I'll start with an earlier poem called The Searchers, which is based on a film, a Western by John Ford. Um, It's a very disturbing film. John Wayne plays the hero who is a dark and menacing character. Um, A group of white settlers have been raided by um, Comanche, Native Americans, and two a young girl and a, an adolescent girl have been kidnapped. And um, the family goes on this decade-long quest to find them. One has been killed. The other has been integrated into the Comanche community. And when they find her, John Wayne's um, impulse is to kill her because he feels like a white life has been wasted. Um, and so the film is about dealing with this reality that I think is grounded in... Um, a sense of dominion that um, has driven much of of America. Um, The searchers. He wants to kill her for surviving, for the language she spits, the way she runs, clutching her skirt as if life pools there. Instead, he grabs her, puts her on his saddle, rides back into town where faces she barely remembers smile into her fear with questions and the wish, the impossible wish, to forget. What does living do to any of us? And why do we grip it, hang on as if it's the ribs of a horse past commanding, A beast that big could wreck us easily, could rise up on two legs or kick its back end up and send us soaring. We might land any moment like cheap toys. There's always a chimney burning in the mind, a porch where the rocker still rocks, though empty. Why Do we insist our lives are ours? Look at the frontier. It didn't resist. Gave anyone the chance to plant shrubs, dig wells. Watched, not really concerned with whether it belonged to him 
or to him. Either way, the land went on living, dying. What else could it choose? Rude of me not to stand up. I'm sorry. (laughs) I just got so excited and comfortable Um, at the same time. Um, I think throughout my books I've been using poems as a way of processing the questions and often the feeling of unrest that comes from thinking about, you know, who we are. Um, and that might mean in private terms or in social terms, um, nationhood is something that I've also wrestled with. Um, in some of my more recent poems, history has been a way of trying to ask that question, like, who have we been? And, and what um, have we failed to do that maybe looking backward in just the right way could illuminate. Um, maybe I'll read a, um, a couple of poems that are rooted in American history, um, which is also not terribly unique um, in many ways. This is, um, this is a poem called... Oh, I better make sure it's in, this, it's in this book. I'm still finding my way around... Um, around this selection. Okay. Um, This is a poem called I Will Tell You the Truth About This. I Will Tell You All About It. And it's a found poem that's drawn from testimonies and correspondence written or given by black soldiers during the Civil War. Um, People who were asking for help in terms of getting a sense of justice, even getting paid, and after the war petitioning the government to honor their status as veterans and um, give them pensions. But because so many blacks were born into slavery and didn't have birth certificates or didn't have marriage licenses or divorce certificates or name change affidavits, it was very easy to deny them the pensions. And some of these appeals go well into the 20th century. Um, There are two sections in this poem that, to me, are kind of like choruses, and I'll read those. There are many different voices, and to my mind, they're all telling a single, very um, indelible story about America. Excellent, sir. My son went in the 54th Regiment, sir. My husband, who is in Company K, 22nd Regiment, U.S. Colored Troops, and now in the Macon Hospital at Portsmouth with a wound in his arm, has not received any pay since last May, and then only $13. Sir, we the members of Company D, of the 55th Massachusetts Volunteers call the attention of your excellency to our case. For instant, look and see that we never was freed yet, run right out of slavery, in to soldiery, and we hadn't nothing at all. And our wives and mother, most all of them, is a perishing all about. And we all are perishing ourselves. I am willing to be a soldier and serve my time faithful like a man. But I think it is hard to be put off in such doggish manner as that. 
Will you see that the colored men fighting now are fairly treated? You ought to do this and do it at once, not let the thing run along. Meet it quickly and manfully. We poor oppressed ones appeal to you and ask fair play. So please, if you can do any good for us, do it in the name of God. Excuse my boldness, but please, your reply will settle the matter and will be appreciated by a colored man who is willing to sacrifice his son in the cause of freedom and humanity. I have nothing more to say, hoping that you will lend a listening ear to an humble soldier. I will close yours for Christ's sake. I shall have to send this without a stamp, for I hate money enough to buy a stamp. I am 60-odd years of age. I am 62 years of age next month. I am about 65 years of age. I reckon I am about 67 years old. I am about 68 years of age. I am on the rise of 80 years of age. I am 89 years old. I am 94 years of age. I don't know my exact age. I am the claimant in this case. I have testified before you two different times before. I filed my claim, I think, first about 12 years ago. I am now an applicant for a pension because I understand that all soldiers are entitled to a pension. I claim pension under the general law on account of disease of eyes as a result of smallpox contracted in service. The varicose veins came on both my legs soon after the war, and the sores were there when I first put in my claim. I claimed pension for rheumatism and got my toe broke, and I was struck in the side with the breech of a gun, breaking my ribs. I was a man stout, and healthy, over 27 years of age, when I enlisted. When I enlisted, I had a little mustache and some chin whiskers. I was a green boy right off the farm and did just what I was told to do. When I went to enlist, the recruiting officer said to me, Your name is John Wilson. I said, No, my name is Robert Harrison. But he put me down as John Wilson. I was known while in service by that name. I cannot read nor write, and I do not know how my name was spelled when I enlisted, nor do I know how it is spelled now. I always signed my name while in the army by making my mark. I know my name by sound. My mother said, after my discharge, that the reason the officer put my name down as John Wilson was he could draw my bounty. I am the son of Solomon and Lucinda Sibley. I am the only living child of Dennis Campbell, 
My father was George Jordan, and my mother was Millie Jordan. My mother told me that John Barnett was my father. My mother was Mary Eliza Jackson, and my father Reuben Jackson. My name on the roll was Frank Nunn. No, sir, it was not Frank Nern. My full name is Dick Lewis Barnett. I am the applicant for pension on account of having served under the name Lewis Smith, which was the name I wore before the days of slavery were over. My correct name is Hiram Kirkland. Some persons call me Harry, and others call me Henry, but neither is my correct name. You might remember a photo that um, emerged out of uh, Black Lives Matter uh, protests that happened a few summers a- summers ago in Baton Rouge of a young woman in this gauzy sundress being kind of blown back by the wind. And then in the other half of the frame, there's a line of police officers in riot gear. Um, I was invited to write a poem in response to that image by the photographer Jonathan Bachman. Um, and I wanted to think about what that imbalance um, suggested. I had very strong opinions about the situation that the photograph emerges from, but I wanted to think about what the visual vocabulary of the of the photograph could add to my understanding of of um, situation. This is called unrest in Baton Rouge. Our bodies run with ink dark blood, blood pools in the pavement's seams. Is it strange to say love is a language few practice but all or near all speak? Even the men in black armor, the ones jangling handcuffs and keys, what else are they so buffered against if not love's blade sizing up the heart's familiar meat. We watch and grieve. We sleep, stir, eat, love, the heart sliced open, gutted, clean. Love, naked almost in the everlasting street, skirt lifted by a different kind of breeze. I'll read two more poems. Um, Think about um, what it means to belong to a place that doesn't claim you, um, that doesn't see you, that doesn't want to see you, like the officer in that that poem that you read. Um, And I think there are many, many examples of of people who live in such a condition. This is a poem that's contemplating that. And um, I lived with it for a little while, not knowing what to call it. Um, And it's called The United States Welcomes You. I think it could also be called The United Kingdom Welcomes You. Um, The United States Welcomes You. Why and by whose power were you sent? What do you see that you may wish to steal? Why this dancing? Why do your dark bodies 
drink up all the light? What are you demanding that we feel? Have you stolen something? Then what is that leaping in your chest? What is the nature of your mission? Do you seek to offer a confession? Have you anything to do with others brought by us to harm? Then why are you afraid? And why do you invade our night? Hands raised, eyes wide, mute as ghosts. Is there something you wish to confess? Is this some enigmatic type of test? What if we fail? How and to whom do we address our appeal? Close with this. Um, this is a poem that, um, you know, I spent so much time thinking backward toward early American history, toward ongoing American history, and thinking about the myths that um, nations cleave to. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if every poet could write a new myth, like the myth that we, whatever the we you claim, um, whatever that, the myth that we might need. Um, so I don't encourage all of you to do that. It's kind of um, an interesting practice. Maybe it's like a wish-making exercise, but this is, this is a poem called An Old Story. We were made to understand it would be terrible. Every small want, every niggling urge, every hate swollen to a kind of epic wind livid the land and ravaged like a rageful dream, the worst in us having taken over and broken the rest utterly down. A long age passed when at last we knew how little would survive us, how little we had mended, or built, that was not now lost. Something large and old awoke. And then our singing brought on a different manner of weather. Then animals long believed gone crept down from trees. We took new stock of one another. We wept to be reminded of such color. Thank you. get to start it off with a little conversation and then we'll open it up but um, listening to the the way that perspective shifts so gracefully surprisingly startlingly and also one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh, it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, in a way that invites me into so many different um, proximities to, to others. Um, I think about things that poems can do that other things can't do. Um, and I, I would love to hear from you, Jay, um, what, about what, what poems are building or unearthing or um, inviting us to kind of touch base with um, that things like, um, well, I, I'm asking this question because I feel like we're living in a time where logic and law and democracy and civility, um, those structures don't seem adequate um, to guide us through what it feels like to be a human alive and also to guide us toward each other in ways that are, are useful or productive. Poems are doing that, I think. Um, I would love to hear you talk about the poems that you believe in or the, what, what poems have um, made real for you. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's very true. And... Uh, it's a really large question too because it's one I think I've been thinking about since maybe even the genesis of the book like why why even write a poem right like what's, what, what are you even doing when you do that um, I think maybe the first bit of, of the question which is about what poems can do that other things can't do is a really interesting question actually <laughs> um, and I think you know there is the very special subjectivity of a poem right there's a very special I that is multi multiple and manifold and can disappear and come back and do all kinds of interesting stuff. It can be many things at once. Um, I think that's something, that's a very human desire, that's what we all long for, right? That's mm-hmm. what we all want. That's what, that indeed, is who we all are as well. Um, and so for me, anyway, like, writing these pieces, and I think also in the poems that you read about the different um, figures and soldiers and stuff, writing these poems was a case of maybe unpacking my own sense of self a little bit which I think can be both dangerous and incredibly fruitful mm-hmm. um, and not so much trying to I'm not trying to speak on behalf of or for these people um, that I kind of like came across in the archives but kind of through and with and at the same time as and you know really like messing with that um, and I think it's an exercise in, in humanity that um, is very simple it's really hard to commodify <laughs> Mm-hmm. Poetry don't sell. Thank God, <laughs> right? Lies. Here, here we all are, right? Yeah. Um, and it, it kind of feeds the soul in a very kind of particular way. I think that's what it does that, that other things maybe can't can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of the 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 um the second piece, the second question about what 
what has come alive for me, like why things come alive for me. Like that mm-hmm. was that it. Yeah, like what what have poems activated for you? I guess. What what did the poems activate? Yeah, the um, ones you're writing and the ones you're you're reading or listening. To. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like the one these these poems definitely activated um, a real question about. what it means to be um, a black queer person in Britain Mm -hmm. and not in identitarian terms necessarily but in terms of I don't believe we can continue to think about uh, politics or poetry or writing or anything in singular terms and this is where the kind of word intersectionality comes in mm-hmm. and that cannot solely be across identitarian lines it actually has to be across other lines as well um, environmental archival technological mm-hmm. this working in the archives totally blew my mind in that respect like reading the work of like someone like John the Rose, who's not a very well known or well established poet at all uh, here, well, an established figure, but not as well known as, as he might be, um, was amazing because he's all about politics and language and poetry and and politics and how the two are, you can't separate them out, you know. Um, sort of re- reading his work, reading the work of Martin Carter as well was amazing. Martin Carter's got like all of these poems that are just sort of. You read them and they're, they're not designed to make sense, but they are designed to kind of undo something in you and redo it, you know, as you kind of read it and as you read it back to yourself and things like that. But also I think other material really, like, came alive for me. So documentary is, like, one of my second loves. Mm-hmm. Um, as a, there's a film that I urge you all to go out and find, if you can, called Twilight City. Uh, has anyone heard of this film? No? Who? Oh, well done. Okay, so it's Reese Reese August. Um, it's an incredible film. It's an incredible documentary, all about um, Britain, race, sexuality, all of that, and all of that. Like watching that was incredibly useful in understanding how I would put my own work together, um, and also the work of someone like John Acomfora, because um, he's got this notion of the peripatetic jump, which was so key, I think, in like ordering my poems you know and thinking about like what is missed out and what we kind of fill in with that as well mm-hmm. um and i think poems can poems do that poems leave dark space that you then kind of enter yeah right? i'm interested in your 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 response to that too because i think actually there's a lot of like um similarity uh in what we're, we're both doing and going into the past and kind of bringing it forward yeah yeah i found i felt this feeling of you know those voices um, in that Civil War poem, I thought I would read about those people and say something about them or even imagining that I could speak as them. But those voices are alive. They're not like asleep. You, you, you turn to these letters and they feel ongoing in a way. And that was really, I think, a beautiful realization. Like history... Um, it's still it's still breathing and it's still generating something urgent that we can choose to listen to. And I, I think that that poem for me is really just about saying, can we all like come sit in a circle and listen to these people? Because what they're saying makes very 
urgent sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I I feel like you know when I was traveling a lot these past few, couple of years, talking about what is poetry, what does it do? I found myself saying poetry is one of the things that, that can restore us to our large original selves. And I don't know exactly that I can prove that, but I feel like that you know we are not we're not limited to the identities that we claim or the identities that are thrust upon us. Um, we're not limited to the goals and values uh, that are we're kind of urged to embrace. Many of them driven by the market, mm-hmm. um, and we have something real to say to one another. And there's so many things in in our day-to-day life that sort of negate those things, but poems invite us to, um, to speak from and to the, these sources that we, we don't have names for. I felt that so much when you were reading, I think negative, is that the first of the negative positive, Mm -hmm. um, or is that right? Minus plus, um, and hearing the speaker say you, him, and realizing I'm, my allegiances are being pulled in these different ways and it's frightening and it's so right. And we don't, you know, we, we find ourselves comfortable in these, um, perspectives that prevent that from happening. They're designed to prevent that from happening, but poems, if you let them can jostle you out of that and they can do that in many different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like even a, a person who has a completely secular perspective on reality, there is something within the spirit that poems feed. Um, and, you know, that can be anchored to anything, but it's a large and mysterious space that I think we belong to and we crave it even if we don't have a vocabulary for it. Um, I like the ways that um, poems through silence and through um, even rhythmic momentum can urge me out of um, understanding and into something that's deeper than that. And we don't, we don't do that enough, right? It's not part of our culture, but I think it's part of what we as humans are probably um, built of in a way. Yeah. I mean, you talk about love a lot. <laughs> actually, didn't, don't you? You, yeah. about it. Uh, you, see, you read a poem about it, didn't you? Uh, yeah. Like something, we, we speak the language of it, but we don't practice it, mm-hmm. which is sadly true. You know? Yeah. I was talking to a former student recently, and um, they were alerting me to all... We were talking about, you know, my, my 21st century gripe, which is, oh... You know, we're, we're being corralled into these perspectives where we are supposed to be branding ourselves and, you know, like marketing ourselves. And, and then at the end of the conversation, I found myself saying to them, I want to be a resource for you. And I said, don't use that word. It's not about commerce. And said, oh, you're so right. There are so many ways that, um, but I, I love that, that poems can invite us to think about, you know, the transaction of being human as something that's non, monetary um, yeah, totally. yeah. I mean I have a, a question for you okay. actually <laughs> <laughs> um, about um, being a poet laureate because it's intense and <laughs> kind of amazing um, but what does it mean to you know be a black woman in this position 
in the US at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean to be in this position of such intense recognition and honor with a president who <laughs> da 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 <laughs> we could list yeah in <laughs> verbs that could come up that. <laughs> yeah. yeah um i had to really think about what that would mean before kind of going into the into the role and i thought i decided that um we live in a time you know for the reasons i described in others too where poetry is so necessary um particularly for thinking about the discomfort one end of the spectrum to violence on the other end of the spectrum that results from the distance and difference between you know different groups of us right race is the big thing but there are others too um and so i said okay i want i want to be like a a champion of this empathy or compassion building art form i want to be a champion of all the many voices um coming out of contemporary poetry who are telling us that america is many many different things and we must value each of those things um and when i was traveling i spent the last two years traveling to rural communities in different parts of the US and so these are places where we're told those of us who live in you know cities and coasts this is the red heart of america you have no business going in here you won't understand anything that is happening there um and i said i don't i i don't want to believe that and i bet even if it's true um poems could create bridges between people and so i went into to different communities and I found really beautiful, thoughtful people who are struggling with similar questions, whose lives are characterized by different things and so some of their questions are, and struggles are different, but who are curious about what other people's lives feel like and who upon listening to a poem that, you know, in which the speaker's talking about childhood or loss or um, you know, immigration are willing to say this speaks to me in these ways and it reminds me of these things that i've felt too that in a in a you know coming out of the narrative of, of america right now which is divided um violent kind of at loggerheads with itself that that made me feel so hopeful and so grateful um it made me know that um there's something happening on the ground that's different from what we're being urged to accept and even in places where there is division and I went into some places like that and met people who said I'm white I live in a, a community that's segregated and so I brought my three white kids here to hear you because they need to know that black people have something to say that they need to to kind of take in and then you know hearing black women say I brought I'm here because I want my daughter to see someone who looks like her doing something like this. All of that um um I kind of lost the thread of the sentence there, but um all of that made me feel like there's there's a hunger that sits on the ground in in different communities and um regardless of, you know, what's happening in the White House, I think there are people who really care and want to learn about, you know, what's possible. Um so 
so I feel very grateful. I feel um, this more and more just from the almost the requirement of having to talk about this art form in different contexts. I understand that poetry really is something that can repair the culture that I come from that has been degraded by a lot of, a lot of, you know, like illogical and deliberately, um, obfuscating language Mm -hmm. and other things too. I mean, I totally agree with you there. Um, when I was like working on this book, um, I kept returning to this thing of the media. Um, not only because the media, I think has, a sort of weird monopoly over what we think is information mm-hmm. um, and what we think is truth. Um, but also because I think, especially when you go into an archive or you look at a particular kind of history, there's an expectation of reportage or what you're going to take on the position of the journalist. Um, and I kind of wanted to actively not do that in this, actually, mm-hmm. to maybe flirt with it a little bit, but to be like, actually, poetry is like, it's a kind of truth and it's in language that, is like you say restorative rather than like sensationalist mm-hmm. you, know, you know what I mean and like it's so important that we don't let the key moments of our current time get only recorded by journalists and by the media obviously journalists are wonderful and great but it, it cannot be the only thing and it also can't be the, the only thing that that we kind of seek out when we try to find information about the world um, and also I think there's something about the way that like most of us, I'm pretty sure, get all of our information via, like, one of four websites, right? <laughs> so um, someone told me this really great joke the other day. They were like, uh, in 1990, the internet was this, like, you know, vast web of, like, interesting things connected to each other. You know what I mean? Like, everyone was kind of, like, creating all this stuff. 2019, the internet is four websites, which is mainly screenshots of the other three. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was a really great way of, oh, yeah. of looking at how language and, and, and information has kind of been degraded, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think poetry is information as such, right? I don't think that, but I do think it's like useful to like think about like the degraded nature of the language and the de- the degradation of the discourse, mm-hmm. and to be like actually, like you know, there's something uh, better that people have spent time on. You yeah, know, that's, that's that's actually good for you. <laughs> and like you said at the beginning. We, we have to bring these things back into an embodied kind of place because it's their lives on the line and their bodies on the line and we have to kind of find ways of, of rem- remembering or learning that um, poems can do that really effectively. Totally. Um, do we have any questions from the audience? <laughs> yes, congratulations, Jay. Super excited. Um, I just wondered if you might say a little bit about um, music um, and the impact that that's had on the work and um, also perhaps connecting it to the conversation that you've just had. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, music. So uh, actually it's, it's brought up two things for, for me. Uh, the first thing I'd like to talk about is the danger of music, right? So as poets, it's really dangerous when you start singing because then everyone just kind of wants to hear you sing, right? If if your voice is okay, like maybe not not all the time, but like I definitely have found like there are like three 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 songs in the book, if you know what I mean. Um, um, one which is a narration of the New Crossfire and kind of like what happened. One which is a kind of aftermath which you heard, which is about somebody who's 
I, I was really interested in this idea of like histories of people who are kind of like cast aside and who we ignore and who ask us for change and we, we kind of brush them off. And that was a kind of a song about that kind of person. And then there's a third song as well. Um, which which is sort of informing the book, but isn't necessarily there, um, which asks the question of, like, you know, why does this feel like it's happened to you? Why does this feel like it keeps happening? It keeps happening over and over again. Um, the first song actually comes from something that my dad used to do a lot. So my dad was, like, part of, like, um, that kind of, like, youth culture of the 70s and 80s where you had these, like, black Caribbean kids with their sound systems. Um, and he was at Carnival in 79 and was, like, you know, with his shirt off, like, you know, playing music at, like, top volume. Um, and that, like, that culture has, like, definitely, like, come to me, uh, like, like through, through him, pretty much. Um, and he used to basically, like, invent like little songs using the rhythm that I've got in that in that so it's like a really like common like childhood kind of thing like it'd be like something really like dumb like like I don't know Karen is a poet and she has curly hair (laughs) it's really nice that she's come down here (laughs) her work is amazing and it's an aviary of birds an aviary of oh god now I've embarrassed myself sorry what is that again an aviary of small things, small birds, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Ah, oh, my flow is gone, sorry everyone. It was nice while I lost it. But it was like that, you know what I mean? It was all silly stuff, you know what I mean? Um, and then I thought it'd be really lovely to take that, like, that that song from my, like, childhood that he just used to, like, riff on all the time and turn it into a kind of narration, you know what I mean? Um yeah, and it was really important to kind of embody that kind of, like, bystander figure. You know what I mean? Like, everyone knows the person who just knows everything, the gossip. You know, the person who's, like, found out all this stuff before everyone else. You're like, how do you know this, you know? And have that figure, that kind of community figure, like, like telling these stories. Um, and there's a lot about sound system as well. Like, uh, if you come to the event uh, on the 20th, 21st and 22nd, we have the Boss Sound System, which is a new one that's just, just been started up. Um, so yeah, like music is important to it. It's definitely like um, informed it a lot. Uh, dub poetry, reggae, all of that. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Sweet. Cool. Thanks. Hi Jay. Hey. Congratulations. I've been so excited about um, this book ever since I came down to New Beacon Books. Yeah. So you do the beginnings of it. But my question is actually for Tracy. <laughs> could have just said hi, Tracy. <laughs> and it's kind of a similar question to the one Karen asked. Um, I had to review Wade in the Water positively. Oh, thank <laughs> um, you. But I was familiar with the song Wade in the Water, so as soon as I saw the book, the first thing I did was go on Spotify and play all the versions of Wade in the Water I could find. And I just wondered... How you arrived at that? Was it the song that yeah, really absolutely. Um, I had been thinking about um, about the history, um, and I was so that Civil War poem was one of the first history and documentary poems that I wrote, but there are a couple of others. And um, I was also working on a libretto for an opera that's rooted in this American South and had been going on some research trips that took me to plantations and sites of slave auctions. And um, I was really burdened by this history. 
felt a lot like I had felt as a child learning about slavery in school and feeling a kind of guilt almost or shame, um, which is ridiculous. But I think that, um, there was this feeling like, how could this have happened? Um, I didn't feel the sense of shame, but I felt the sense of rage and regret. And then I went to a ring shout and, um, there's a poem in the book that kind of narrates that one of the performers greets, greeted everyone by saying, I love you and giving everyone a hug. And it feels real. I mean, that this is how she's chosen to see other people. And they performed Wait in the Water. That was one of the many songs that they performed. I've always loved that song, but I also felt um, this beautiful sense of that troubling. Um, and I realized this awful unrest and the feeling almost of um, a painful gratitude when someone offers you the opposite of all of that as a similar kind of troubling. And it, it felt like the place where um, something valuable can come out of. So I wanted to just sort of honor that song. I wanted to ask people to think about it and do what you did um, and to think about what um, what it means to trouble and what it means to be available to that as well. Um, Hi, uh, thank you both very much. Um, do do either of you have a, a process for writing your history or documentary poems? I'm wondering, like, how um, the uh, historical documents are translated into poetry. I found myself um, sort of waiting to see what someone just did it. <laughs> do that. <laughs> I found myself waiting to see what the document, how they spoke to me. Um, and sometimes the approach, the intended approach was wrong. And then the document would say, <clears throat> no, this is how you will use me. Um, and maybe that's really just the result of the questions that began to form in my mind. Um, I had really never, I've taught, found poetry to my students over the years, but I'd never written any of it myself. And so uh, writing erasures or these, you know, these kinds of, um, documentary poems felt like a very unusual impulse. Um, I found myself, at one point it almost felt like I was using a Ouija board because I was trying to read against the grain of um, some correspondence written between members of a slave-holding family. And I wanted to hear within that language the voice of the people that they were speaking about, the the women that that were enslaved to them. And so I felt like, okay, wait, this is a statement, but that's not the statement I'm supposed to hear. Oh, this is the statement I'm supposed to It felt as though, you know, the thing you hope happens when you're writing is that your imagination and intelligence and values can lead you somewhere at which point something better can pick up and guide you forward. And it felt like that something better was, you know, was making itself known. So it was exciting to me. Yeah, I think the Ouija board is true, right? Uh, And for me, I guess it was returning to the same material just over and over and over again. Like, I think the work is very specifically rooted in one specific archive. So I think there's traces of that, and that kind of felt important to me. And like I said before, I actively resisted 
doing that thing of like going around with a microphone and trying to interview everybody and trying to like doc create documentary and then like after about a year and a bit I was like no it has to come from my own feeling right and that is I think a little more for me anyway it felt more risky than asking essentially permission um and I also thought like do I really want it to be part of my process that I like knock on the doors of people who were traumatized 40 years ago do I really want to dig that up so actually I think the process had to like had to shift you know what I mean and there's that thing like if you know when something's wrong but you're doing something wrong when you're just like this is wrong <laughs> you know? and I had that feeling for like three four months actually at, at one point where I just wasn't really engaging with the material anymore um and it's because like deep down there's just this niggling sense of like your impo- your 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 instinct is right and your like permission seeking pleasing you know kind of side of you is wrong um so yeah that was that was like super interesting and then i think there was just the process of just going back over it and rethinking it and resifting and just kind of doing that that stuff um and like there was there were lines for example that i'd photocopied that I was like, we can't lose this, you know what I mean? And, like, we'd put it in and take it out. And I mean, Parisa, you know this. You're, like, sitting there. Like, what a nightmarish process it was sometimes to, like, kind of extract all that, you know, blacking out and putting back in. Yeah. Hello. Thank you both so much for the readings and the conversations. It's been brilliant. Um, I think my question was mainly directed at Jay, but also open to you, JC. How did writing this collection help you um, reimagine or reconsider embodiment, which is what I think you mentioned um, in relation to race and gender, all these like sort of um, lines of identity, but then also, I guess, like drawing lines between the New Cross Fire and Grenfell and, and what the embodiment of this sort of tragedy means. Yeah, that's my question. Yeah, totally. So, um, like I said before, it, 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 as the more I kind of engaged with it, um, the more I realised that I couldn't simply think of myself in straightforward terms. And I, I don't think I ever did, if you know what I mean, but it just became really clear. And the reason it came really clear is because at the centre of the story is this young woman called Yvonne Ruddock, right? And she was 16. And in that poem where I'm saying, jump Yvonne, jump Paul, jump, that's um, Yvonne Ruddock and also her brother Paul Ruddock, who died as well. He died whilst running in trying to rescue them. Um, and she died because she fell out, fell out of a window. Um, and I realised that I had never heard this this young woman's name before. You know what I mean? Like this was a major thing that happened, and she'd never been mentioned. And you know, while I was at school, we learned about the Anglo-Saxons, and we learned about Henry VIII and all the, the wives he murdered. But we never learned about anything to do with our own communal history, right? I grew up in South London. How had I never heard of this person? And obviously, in terms of my own like um, sort of gender, sort of shifts as well like how that was that was changing and shifting I was like as I masculinize and as I start to take on like a different pronoun what does that mean in relation to my history um of black womanhood well how do how do you square that circle um and it was a it was a really big um hurdle I think that I had to kind of overcome because it's so funny to look at a piece of history where you identify so strongly and yet you probably wouldn't have been welcomed there, if you know what I mean, and like, what would this person have like thought of you? So it really changed like my queer politics. I was like, you know, it's not about, it's not solely about who, who you're attracted to. It's about the spaces you inhabit. It's about how you're read. There's so much came out of that. 
I don't remember what the second part of your question was, sorry. What was the second part? It was about... Also, like, as the, as the issues in body, like, um, revive themselves, I guess, with the new Messiah and then a grandfather, how it helps you, or potentially made you reimagine um, what these incidents mean, like, across time, and can they reoccur? Yeah, I think, I think, um, I think that's the problem, right? Like, we, we were kind of saying, it, it, they reoccur, so the problem is still there, right? Um, and it is actually terrifying. Like you can go and, and look at this yourself. If you go to the GPI, you can literally go and look at the same boxes that I did, um, and uh, it's it's amazing. Like some of the lines in it could be from 2017. You know what I mean? Like when I, because it, it happened a year after I'd initially started the process. So I'd read all this stuff, and then I was like, holy, wait a minute! I can actually predict like what is going to happen next. And sure enough, they blame the people in the house, right? The oh, first wow. the first person arrested for Grenfell was the the, 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 the old black guy, right? <laughs> they went in. The guy whose fridge... It's like a horror movie. It's the like first person to die. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. The first person to die. He's a black, black guy. Uh, who else? Uh, somebody who sort of lied about, um, you know, having family members there. Do you know what I mean? Like, have we seen anybody at all <laughs> who was actually in charge really get prosecuted? The next inquiry isn't until 2021. You listen to the inquest and it's like there were clear fault here you know what I mean like and it's the same thing with the new crossfire the first people that they went and arrested were the kids who had been at the party right those were the first people that they targeted and they blamed the black community in general they were like well the black community knows who's doing it but they're, they're not they're not saying who it is you know then they blame the family they, they invented a story that the the mother had been having an affair with someone in the house and that you know and that was why do you know what I mean like it was it was complete completely ludicrous um but then at the same time, and I think this is probably the most key thing, um, just my kind of my last point really, is that actually also, in addition to all of that, there is a sort of tension when the private truths of a political event are different or maybe more challenging than it first appears, right? And I don't think that was the case with Grenfell, but I definitely think that's the case with the New Crossfire. Like, I don't think the New Crossfire is what it seems. Um, and that's why I kind of avoided the documentary direction, because I think it's, it's funny, you see all these people signing their names in the book, and they're all following the same path as you do, and I think eventually everyone comes to a very similar conclusion. Oh, wow. You know? So, um, so yeah, there's that personal, political, private, public kind of tension as well, which is interesting. Thank you so much. Oh, I mean, my pleasure. Um, is that is that everything? I think we got everything. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.